I've worked in behavioral health, physical and nutritional fitness, maternal and child health, foodborne outbreaks, all kinds of things. Um, and now I'm currently working on affordable housing and, you know, how do we use housing to achieve health equity? How do we advance health equity, get better health outcomes for people who historically have been ignored? Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. You have Jasmine, Nemo, and we have a special guest, Natasha Dowell. We will get into that in a minute. But Nemo, how you doing? What's going on? Happy Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving. Yes, happy post-Thanksgiving. Um, I am doing well. I can't complain. Um, I actually started getting annoyed when people would ask me, like, how was your Thanksgiving? Like, on Wednesday, I'm like, let it rest. It's okay. <laughs> Cyber Monday has passed. It is Giving Tuesday. Like we can not ask me about Thanksgiving anymore. <laughs> We're on to the next. But how are you? I'm good. I think Giving Tuesday is so funny. It's like spend money on Wednesdays for groceries, spend money on Thursday for Thanksgiving, spend money on Friday, shop small on Saturday. What's Sunday? Sunday's oh no, they rest. gave Sunday rest. They they gave thank you for giving us Sunday. Then Monday is Cyber Monday, and then they want you to give one too. It's like so y'all want a whole week of me spending money that I don't have. Oh, we get two what, checks. <laughs> like what do you? Want? <laughs> the NFL did something this year for Thanksgiving. They usually always have a game like on Thanksgiving Day, which we some people watch, some people don't watch. But this year they had the first ever Black Friday game I didn't watch it I forgot what teams played but I did think it was interesting because I think it to me it signaled I don't I haven't looked up like the stats on like the number of people who shopped online versus were in the store this year but to me it signaled that like they had enough confidence that there'd be enough people at home to watch this Friday game which on Black Friday when I was growing up, we was in the stores all day, like from the nighttime on Thursday to the next day. But it seemed like maybe that's not the case anymore. So they feel like they have opportunity to make some money here. But what are your kind of thoughts on it? Yeah, I think that would be interesting to see the, I feel like I don't know anybody personally who was rushing to go to anybody's mall on Friday. <laughs> so I feel like they did probably get pretty good numbers, but I like the idea of, uh, I like the, willingness I guess for the NFL and these streaming sites or cable networks I appreciate the willingness to change what had been done historically um for cons- you know for consumers or for the for the viewing public so I can definitely appreciate that and then maybe that will also change how they do parking limits in these <laughs> commercial <laughs> areas moving forward too if the NFL can do it we too can change our ways I think that we used to that in planning school where they would like show that the parking requirement for like a Macy's is like based on Black Friday and it's like well that's the busiest day of the year do we really need all of this extra parking they would show like pictures of like the parking on Thanksgiving and then the parking on Black Friday and like the difference in them so 
interesting. But to today's topic. Yeah. And so for those of us who have been listening for the last few years, um, as we're in the early part of season four, um, we covered this topic a little bit in some previous episodes. And now when you hear community development and, it, you know, you may think of it outside of a planning space and just look at the core term of the word, you may think, okay, a community that needs to be developed, a community that's starting from somewhere that may need assistance or <clears throat> that may need assistance or may need some level of improvement. Um, if you tune into some of our past episodes, so our first episode, History of Racism and Urban Planning, um, where we talk about how things in the built environment and policy were not done by accident, um, but were done on the basis of were done on the basis of race um, and exclusion and segregation. Um, and then we also had a follow-up episode to that. Um, I think it was the fourth episode in season one, where we discussed policy attempts to remediate injustice. And in that episode, we covered the Fair Housing Act. We also discussed the low-income housing tax credit, um, which we may get into a little bit today as well, when we think about the financial side of community development. Um, and then in season two, we also looked at, um, we had an episode called Tracing the Dream, where we looked at the Civil Rights Act and some of the um, the factors that Dr. Martin Luther King had in his vision for the U.S., um, and uh, looking at a comparison of the 1960s to present day and seeing how far we've come with various socioeconomic um, things like income and um, ec income, economic opportunity, job opportunities. So I think all of those episodes would be a helpful context for the conversation that we're going to have today. To get into the conversation, <clears throat> I will read Natasha's bio, but just some background is that just like Nemo and I met when I was in undergrad, Natasha and I met when we were both in grad school. And so I will jump into her bio now before going into the first question. Natasha Dowell works as a loan officer at a community development financial institution in the Southeast. Based in Atlanta, her work involves financing affordable housing developments from North Carolina all the way down to Florida and as far west as Louisiana. Natasha has over a decade of public health experience and is passionate about bringing to life community development projects that advance health equity. Natasha, would you please tell us a bit about yourself, your pronouns, the places that you live, educational, professional development, and your why? Why this? Why now? Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, yeah, my name is Natasha. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I've lived, I've had the pleasure of living in a few places. So I grew up in Miami, um, then I moved uh, to Gainesville, Tampa, and Florida, and then uh, lived in New Orleans for a little bit, lived in Chile for a little bit, and now I'm in Atlanta and I've been here almost nine years, which I'm, I love it here. Um, my educational background, so I have a master's in public health uh, from University of South Florida and a master in city and regional planning from Georgia Tech, which is where I met Jasmine. Um, and I have been, have worked on a range of public health topics, so um, and the reason why I do this work is America owes Black people. We, they, America just has done us wrong. Um, we have poor health, educational, and financial outcomes than almost every other racial group in this country. And it's really hard to believe that that's not by de design. And I think this show has, has done a lot to prove that it is design. So I'm here to challenge and reverse that design. And that's why I do this work. 
Thank you for sharing that. I love, I, I feel like that needs to be on a shirt. I know Issa Rae had rooting for everybody black, but we have some compensation that is to be owed. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, and really on that line, we wanted to add some national stats to um, the work that you do, as Jasmine mentioned <clears throat> in your bio, um, being a loan officer at a community development financial institution and some of the charge that is behind CDFIs and why um, they exist looking at the poverty stats in the US. And like you mentioned, um, uh, when you compare the growth of median household income um, over the last you know, 60 years, 100 years, um, Black people have consistently been the lowest, um, have had the lowest household income. Um, currently, Asians are the, at the highest, um, Asian Americans, um, and then I, I'm forgetting, but everybody else in the middle. I think it's Black, Hispanic, <laughs> um, and then white somewhere in the middle, and then Asians. Um, so like you said, that is not by, um, that is not random. Um, and so nationally, 12.4% uh, of Americans live in poverty as of 2020, as of 2022, um, which was an increase from 7.4% in 2021. And I think a lot of that may be attributed to um, increased gaps during COVID. But I think it's still pretty significant to see that the poverty rate almost doubled in this country um, from 2021 to 2022. Um, notably, California, Florida, and Mississippi have the highest poverty rates of any state. Um, and then New York and Texas are close behind that. Um, and then why some of this is important for the community development aspect is that the eligibility of resources a lot of times is based on what is defined as a low-income community, which is a poverty rate more than 20%. So if we look at the national average of 12.4, that community has even double that of a poverty rate in their area. Um, and then, or median family income being less than 80% of the area median income, which is a lot more geographical, geographically specific on that region, what their area median income is. And so in the U.S. overall, the 2022 median household income was $74,580. So that's for the, all of the United States. And then if you break it up, um, the West Coast is in the lead with about 83000 for median household income, followed by the Northeast at 80000 Midwest, um, 73000 and then the South at 68000 So it's not you know, evenly distributed throughout the U.S. when you think about income and poverty. Um, when you hear those stats about poverty and income, how do you consider that with both community development goals and the target goals for community development financial institutions? Yeah, it plays a major role because, you know, when I am looking at a loan, you know, considering whether or not we're going to invest in a certain project, the first thing that I look at is the census tract, right? And what is the census tract data showing? Is it showing that this is a high poverty area? Is it showing that this is a low income area? Um, I think that they, you know, the, the main purpose of CDFIs is to make sure that those areas that are not, that have historically been disinvested are getting extra resources, right? So we pay a lot of attention to those areas. Um, I think it's really hard to, to recognize the impact of that when you hear numbers, um, because like you said, it's not an evenly distributed poverty, right? Like there are certain areas that are 
bringing down that average and certain areas that are bringing it up. So really paying attention to what's going on in that specific census tract and paying attention to what's going on on that specific block and how this development is going to affect that block or that census tract is kind of the entire purpose of, of CDFIs. And it's really like, it just gives so much more context and also recognizing that this is not the complete picture. Like we have to understand that some people are falling below that poverty level and some people are falling above it. And we need to like make sure that we're we're really meeting the needs of that specific community. Yeah, I think the census data is super important and I'm always grateful for it's a like it's very widespread available. Like you can an average person, which we talked about before, can pull up the data for their own neighborhood in their own census tract. It always though comes down to how you're interpreting that data. And like the number might show you one thing, but if you have any opportunity to like do a Google map and just like drop yourself into there, you also get a ton of information. Like it may show you that only 8% of the population is in poverty. But when you drop a little person in there, it's like, mm, it feels like more. And sometimes the numbers aren't giving you the full story, but they have like an excellent purpose as a great starting point. To get into kind of community development more broadly, there are a couple examples about it online. But one of the examples that one of the definitions that stood out to me was community development can be a process where community community members come together to take collective action and generate solutions to common problems. Another one says community development seeks to empower individuals and groups of people with the skills they need to affect change within their community. I love those two definitions. I think one of them was from United Nations and the other one might have been from a nonprofit around community development. But how would you describe the goals of community development to listeners that are unfamiliar? Yeah, I agree. Those are such good definitions of community development. Um, I'm, I love that my job is working with people who are practice, actively practicing community development. Um, they see a problem in their neighborhood and don't like the direction of where their neighborhood is going and come together and figure out what exactly is needed. What do we need to build? What do we need to create? What do we need to get rid of to, in order to make this community the, the community that we want to live in? Um, so just to like give an example, earlier this year, I had the opportunity to work on a loan for um, an alumni of Teach for America who created a charter school that is completely Afrocentric because she didn't see any school in Atlanta that was properly teaching Black and African American history to her son and his peers. So she went out, she hired a staff of all Black women. She found a curriculum that teaches kids how to be kind, confident, well-informed citizens. And to me, that is just the epitome of community development. It's identifying the missing gaps in a community, taking agency, creating spaces that people need and want to access, right? And, and a huge part of that is preventing displacement. Like, what is the point of developing your community if you can't continue to live there? So this work definitely has to be done with a lot of partners. So, you know, going back to that example, that teacher, she spent years serving the neighborhood, finding consultants, sourcing funding, perfecting this curriculum. 
And, you know, with all of that effort that she pulled in all those people and resources, from day one, her school was fully enrolled. It was totally full, um, fully staffed. And I think that's just a testament to the, the work and dedication that everybody put in to make that a success. Just a, a follow-up question, because this gets this will get into what is a community development financial institution, but what is a community development financial institution and how does that organization make an investment in a charter school? Like, how does that work together? Yeah, such a good question. So... A community development financial institution or CDFI is an organization that kind of serves as the gap between um, federal investor bank funding and a community. So a lot of the work that we do, a lot of the loans that we do are pretty, it takes kind of a special skill to, to underwrite those loans. And, and a lot of times a government agency or a traditional bank um, just doesn't have the time, resources, interest in, in underwriting those types of loans. So they'll lend the money to a CDFI or gift the, grant the money to a CDFI and the CDFI then put, reinvest that money. So they lend that money out. So, um, let's say a government agency or let's say a foundation will give a CDFI, like the one that I work at, a grant for $5 million and they'll say, hey, we really want to invest in charter schools. We just don't underwrite loans. That's not our interests, right? Then a charter school, like the one I just talked about, they'll come to us and say, hey, I need $3 million to acquire this building, renovate it, and make it into a school. So my role at the CDFI is making sure that the loan is, that I'm getting a loan that is properly sized um, for the charter school. You know, they're not going to go underwater trying to pay us back. Um, they can successfully open the, door, the doors, keep the doors open, and pay us back once they kind of have their funding uh, under, under their feet. So that's kind of what the role of a CDFI is we're putting out dollars that other people can't or won't put out themselves. We're able to facilitate that. Thank you for sharing that. I um, think that's so, I, I appreciate how you said in the beginning that maybe traditional institutions are, do not have a, you know, a specialty or a, the skill set to meet the um, information and really the care and the level of like delicacy and intentionality that's needed when thinking about the financial structure and thinking about the lending and think coming at it from a place of, um, I don't know if compassion is the word, but uh, understanding that behind the numbers and behind this contract and behind these agreements, this is still a community and there's still, um, there's still other factors involved that may not be as black and white as in traditional lending practices. Um, and so with that, understanding that, um, you know, we talk about transportation a lot on the show, um, and then also thinking about community development and how complicated it can be for those of us that study planning traditionally and having to balance resources like financial politics, policy agendas. Um, what happened some of the biggest wins to date in your career? And then how do you keep yourself motivated and encouraged 
um, when those wins may not be as clear as, you know, some of the examples you just mentioned with the charter school? Yeah, it's, it's, it can be tough for sure. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, I, I went to planning school, right? But I don't think I was very interested in being a planner because a lot of the work that a planner does, it takes 20 years to to see the fruits of your labor, right? Like, you know, you kind of always hear it's going to be, you plant a tree today, but you're getting the benefits of the shade of that tree 20 years from now, right? Um, and that's kind of how I saw planning. So I was like, I want to do something where I could see, like, I need a shorter time frame. My attention span is not that long. Like, I need a shorter time frame. So I think something that's really cool about community development, it, it still does take a lot of time, but kind of where I intervene, that could, that 20 years kind of gets shortened down to two years, maybe um, 18 months, something like that. So one of the motivators for me is kind of driving around the city and seeing like, oh, we financed that project or we financed that, or we were going to finance that, but we had to pivot in another way and the organization got something else out of it or what have you, right? Like just having something I can touch and see um, my work. Um, I think one of one of the major things like you were saying about compassion, um, a lot of these, like like that charter school, this is the only loan they're probably ever gonna get, right? Or Or they might get one more commercial loan. Um, a lot of these people are people who they're not out here being master developers. They're just trying to provide something for their community and they need some financing help with that. And I think one of the roles of CDFIs is, is technical assistance and making sure that we're like walking somebody through that process in a, in a compassionate way. And it's it is motivating for me to get to meet people who just care about their community and just want to do something great and like being able to help them through that is is just one of my favorite things um and and it's yeah it's one of my favorite things um and i just kind of stay motivated by remembering the people that that we're helping and also just recognizing that we're doing loans that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And obviously loans come with strings, right? It's not, it's not a gift. Um, but I think that a lot of these people would be priced out otherwise and wouldn't be able to have access to, to this type of financing. And then we wouldn't have a really cool Afrocentric charter school in Atlanta, right? Um, so just kind of remembering those outcomes really keeps me focused. I think the same will go for Nemo and I. We've talked to, we had an episode, um, Four Careers, Four Planners, Four Careers. Mm, am I getting the title of that um, episode right? Four Careers, some Four Degrees, Four Careers. Okay, <laughs> listen to that episode. But we had, a, we interviewed um, guests who also have planning degrees, but are not doing traditional planning, like working in a planning office um, or working even as a planning consultant. And the theme out of that episode was time. Like I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to be able to see in my lifetime what I was going to be doing. Um, 
and so we Nemo and I both resonate very well. That's how we chose. We both have plenty of degrees, but we both chose non quote unquote traditional. I think that's one of the benefits though of having a planning degree is like if it has a built environment component of it, it's right there for you. Like you got it. Um, but to that end, you started your career, you led with saying you had a passion for public health and you talked about all the different public health um kind of areas that you worked in. How did you transition to getting a master's in urban planning? And in what ways do you use both urban planning and public health to influence your decision-making or maybe your mindset around the problems that you're trying to solve at your job? Yeah, I have had the most winding road and it's, it's um, to get here, but it's all connected. So um, like I said, I got my master's in public health at University of South Florida, which is in Tampa. And while I was there, I got picked up for a fellowship from CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and they placed me at the New Orleans Health Department. And while I was there, I was working on a couple of different programs. But the main role that I had was going to health fairs and telling people, go eat your fruits and vegetables, take a walk every day, right? Like these wholesome, beautiful public health messages. And the faces I was getting were just like, where, how am I supposed to do that, right? And this, and I don't mean to say that this only happens in New Orleans, because it happens in cities all over the country where you cannot follow public health messages because you're living in a food desert or you don't have a sidewalk near you. You don't have a park near you. And I know you all did an episode about public health and the built environment. So I won't go super deep into that, but that experience just showed me a lot about how our infrastructure does not align with the public health messages that we convey. So I, I thought about how does how who who is in charge of this in, infrastructure? Who decides that a corner store goes here instead of a Whole Foods, right? Who who decides this stuff? So that's kind of what piqued my interest about planning school. Um, I took my GRE, let it sit there for a little bit. Then when it was about to expire, I was like, I'm not taking this again. So I went to planning school right before it expired. Um, and I was really interested in, in who is financing these developments? How do they get done? Took a few real estate development courses while I was there. Um, and that's where I learned about CDFIs. Um, so right after getting my master's in city and regional planning, that's when I started working for CDFIs as a lender. And I just, I really got the opportunity to work on a variety of projects. So I was doing affordable housing developments, charter schools, early childcare, education centers, community, um, community buildings and assets. And a lot of the things that we call asset classes in, uh, in lending or at CDFIs are, social determinants of health, affordable housing, social determinant of health, also an asset class. So the things that we, that make up the built environment, schools, transportation, housing, all of that has such major effects on our health, um, especially when it comes to disinvested neighborhoods. It's not even, right? Like I said, there's some neighborhoods that are full of Starbucks and then there's some neighborhoods that are full of corner stores. Um, I knew that 
the history of that was racism. I read Color of Law, right? Like I knew that racism was behind a lot of the 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 design of our cities, um, but I didn't understand exactly how the planning process worked and how community development process worked. So I just went in with the idea, how can I advance health equity by influencing the built environment? Um, and just to like pop in a study here, cause we like, we like information. A few years ago, the Brookings Institute did a study that showed the zip code where you're born is one of the biggest factors in determining your life expectancy. I only sit back and to think about that for a second. In America, where you were born tells you essentially how long you will live. And that's wild to me, right? You don't have a lot of agency in changing where you're born. You have zero. So how do we work at the intersection of health planning to, to add years to people's lives, right? Um, we can change where somebody lives and how they grow up and add years to their life. So in my job every day to kind of get back to your question about how I use this. Um, so planning background, really important for understanding if a project is like properly zoned, for example, um, really important for understanding the other development plans around that project. If somebody wants to come and build an affordable housing development and everything around that place is like gas stations and, um, you know, oil rigs or something, right? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think the planning degree kind of helps me learn, know how to evaluate that. And then my public health background, when I'm looking at, let's say that same affordable housing development, I'm looking at the quality of it. I'm looking at, is this near transportation? Is this, how is somebody's life going to improve by having access to this development? Um, so it, it really is like that whole background has to come together to make sure that we're, we're creating quality assets in our communities. It's really important. I feel like we, We'll need to do a follow-up episode with you, Natasha, on the public health, <laughs> like a follow-up conversation about public health. But it also reminded me of an episode we did last season. Our Black History Month theme was around health and wellness. Um, and we did an episode with two um, personal trainers. Um, they have a fitness collective um, in the Seattle, Washington area. Um, and so it was interesting to hear, like you were saying, people aren't able to follow he these health recommendations and then to talk with two personal trainers who were trying to change what that looks like for um, for black and brown people in their community um, and actually give health recommendations and give spaces where they can follow those health recommendations. Um, so I love how you combine that in your work and, you know, think about it from that equitable space. And that study, um, we will link in our show notes, the Brookings Institution study. There's also um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation probably uses some of the same data, but you can enter in your zip code on the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's website, and it will give you um, a comparison of your county, your state, and how it compares to, not, to the United States average, and it'll show you like the United States average is 76.4 years. It'll show you your zip codes average and like how it really compares. And so while we were on the call, I was like, let me just plug in where I was born and see how it comes out. And so everybody knows I grew up in the suburbs and so of New Jersey. And so my zip code area is like, 
it says 80 years, which is a couple years over the national average. Um, and thinking about both the, um, with the health equity piece, thinking about social justice and racial equity, how do you feel that racial equity, which has, um, you know, come up a lot, and I don't want to say a buzzword, but we know in starting, you know, in 2020, a lot of these organizations were like racial equity, but it's also like repackaging what they may have once called diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just the repackaging of how it's discussed and what, um, what is being prioritized at a time. But in 2023, how do you feel racial equity drives the mission and impact of CDFIs? And then how does that vision look like in a, on a, the day to day? Yeah, so there there are about a thousand CDFIs across the country. So I cannot speak behalf on, on behalf of all of them, but I, I I can speak to what my CDFI does. Um, so in 2020, you know, we we were also part of that crowd putting out statements, but that our statement was followed up by a very clear commitment to. Uh, to invest $5 billion over 10 years um, into three specific areas. So looking at affordable housing, early childcare, and community facilities, which is kind of where like charter schools fall into. Um, and that commitment is, it's on the website, it's in our email signatures, right? Like it is, uh, accountable, right? We are, we are holding ourselves accountable because it's everywhere. Um, and that the whole goal of that is is not only creating spaces where people where people of color can um, really use their you know like can access um, where they can access quality childcare can access quality affordable housing, but it's also making sure that the people creating those spaces are well supported. So how that looks in my day-to-day, -day, um, we have certain products that are specifically for Black developers. Um, historically, Black developers are kind of considered high risk, quote unquote. Um, they're, they don't also, they don't have the $10 million balance sheet. They don't have $10 million in, in the bank that they can just run to Chase, for example, and say, hey, give me a loan because I could back it up, right? We've been priced out of those markets and been have not had access to that kind of wealth. So a lot of times um, you're not able to get a, a loan from a traditional bank in order to create this affordable housing. So at the organization that I'm at, there is a very strong concerted effort to, there are specialized products. So when I say specialized products, I mean, loans with better interest rates or loans with um, longer terms, a little bit more flexible loans, specifically for Black developers. There's grants and flexible loans for Black women who own an early child care center. Um, there's just a very concerted effort on Black people who are trying to create very quality assets in disinvested communities. Um, and then a lot of, you know, going back to kind of that compassion and technical assistance, we walk through with whoever is, is, is borrowing money from us, we walk through that entire process with them and, and really take the time to create a loan that, that really fits their project and is not going to bankrupt them, right? Like, we don't want that. We want to make sure that 
their balance sheet is growing as well so that they can continue to do this and continue to, to provide these amazing assets that we need in our communities. So that's that's what it looks like at my organization. Um, I think there is a very, it's, it's clear and evident in, in who we choose to work with um, and how we choose to do that work is really advancing wealth for our developers who are who typically would not be able to access that wealth because of racism so i just want to ask this question so we talked we defined cdfis you kind of gave us a a good high level of like why they exist in the market and the role that they play in the financial market but if you can walk us through the life cycle of a CDFI in terms of how they identify community needs, any community engagement that might be involved, project construction, completion, et cetera, and like how the organization will make a final decision, right? So you mentioned charter schools, you mentioned affordable housing as some of like the pillars, but if you can give us an example of something, when something hits your desk for the first time versus a year, two years later when you see it going up or or something like that. Yeah, so um it can be a process for sure um i would say that in my role or or yeah i would say that in my role the community engagement we really rely on the developer or the nonprofit that is borrowing money from us like we rely on them to do the community engagement so um a lot of times they come to us and they're like we've been to the neighborhood meetings or we're from this neighborhood like we know everybody in this neighborhood right like we have gone to city council we have done the the surveying right like they've done so much of that legwork of um community engagement that we kind of rely on that to to um meet our community engagement box um, and so what happens is, uh, let's say Jazz and Nemo Development Incorporated, the two of you come to um, my desk and you say, hey, I need a loan, I need $5 million to buy this property and develop it into 40 units of affordable housing. At that point, what I do is I uh, underwrite Jazz and Nemo, right? I say, what is your experience in this, in this lane? what is your financial picture looking like what is this um why are you doing this project right are you just trying to create an affordable housing development and then you're going to sell it two years from now and it's not going to be affordable anymore right what is your purpose what is your why i then i kind of move to the project itself and i look at those 40 units, how many of them are affordable? How affordable are they? We look at area median income um, and try to understand who can afford this. Is it people who currently live in that neighborhood? Are we trying to make sure that we're preventing displacement? And we use a couple of metrics to do that. Um, and then from there, there is a lot of paperwork. Let's say, you know, we uh, let's say we approve, we're really comfortable with what you're doing. Um, and we're comfortable with the the project as is. Um, then we get lawyers involved um, and they help us make sure that the Jazz and Nemo Development Incorporated is 
a real entity that can um, have money, can hold debt. And then we kind of create a loan that is structured for the project and understanding how long you need the loan, et cetera. And then we put together um, a package, a kind of closing package of just all the things that we've gathered at that point, we close on the loan. That whole process can take anywhere from two months to two years. Like it totally depends on the project, um, depends if there's like tax credits involved. Um, oh, sorry, another thing I forgot to mention, we, my role is also pulling from a bunch of different funding sources to make sure that we're like giving you the best deal that we can get you. And then after that, the loan closes, you all have like a year, maybe two years to pay us back. And then we go to a ribbon cutting and we're all having a great time. So that's kind of the life cycle. So to me, that makes sense, right? I work in commercial real estate. So I understand if it's in a housing development, but some of the other things you mentioned that are pillars, schools, for example, um, what are some of the more, um, I don't want to use the word non-traditional, but some of the other, some of the other physical or non-physical things that your that, uh, CDFI would invest in that would be totally outside of the realm of like a bank is not doing this. Like Chase would never touch this. How? Do, what are some of those examples? Yeah, that's a good question. They so so again, there's so many different kinds of CDFIs. Some of them do invest in small businesses. Um, they'll do like micro loans, uh, you know, literally a thousand dollars because somebody needs to buy yarn to create their Etsy shop, right? Like it, it can get that granular to where I work, we're doing like multi-million dollar deals. Um, and where I work is all real estate based. So we only do physical projects, but kind of in that like non-traditional bucket or, or, um, people who probably wouldn't be able to go to a Chase Bank or a Bank of America. I think mean, the early childcare sector, that's definitely a place. So when you sit back and think about it, a lot of the early childcare centers are run by one lady in her house. She got five kids in there, right? And it is not necessarily a profitable business um, because she's really good at taking care of children. She's not good at running a business. She's not good at making sure that the, the dollars make sense at the end of the day. So that is somewhere where like my organization will step in and provide grants to that woman to, or, or even flexible financing that helps her maybe expand from her garage to like a small studio um or something right like give her a place where she can um continue to provide the quality care that she's been providing for years and years but she knows she's going to make her mortgage at the end of the month because we were able to help with that that is something that chase would never do right like a traditional bank would never step in and and provide that type of service um I think another area that's typically really difficult or that even a Chase or, or whatever these, I'm not trying to pick on Chase, traditional banks um, what can't, can't literally can't do is in the, um, um, like the, that charter school space. Um, it's, 
a lot of times we're working, like I said earlier, we're working with people who are going to get a commercial loan one time in their life just to get this thing off the ground. Um, it's very risky because a lot of times the charter school does not own the space that they're in. They are leasing that from a landlord. So if things go wrong at the school, if enrollment drops, how are they going to make the rent to the landlord? That can be kind of risky. And how are they going to make rent and also pay us back? So those are kind of examples of where a CDFI will step in. Um, another space, this is not necessarily what, what I do, but other CDFIs will help with like housing counseling. So let's say Nemo, you wanna buy a house tomorrow, but you have no clue where to start. Some CDFIs have credit unions or other branches where they will, you can go to their class and say, hey, I wanna buy a house and they will walk you through that and then also have some like down payment assistance, um, have some other options for, for getting you into that house. So again, those are things that like a traditional bank is not doing on the regular. I, the, some of, you know, in that response, I started to think about um, the impact side and like the reporting I don't know. I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but the for a CDFI to be certified, that's through the U.S. Department of Treasury, um, right? And so, from that federal standpoint, um, CDFIs being able to maintain their certification and thinking about reporting um, the. I'm curious from your perspective and what you've seen in your experience of one potential challenges with. Um, with reporting and showing impact, but then also the um, pressure of, um, and I'm losing my train of thought. So the pressure from the reporting side, but then also the pressure of getting funds out the door when there may be those challenges that happen throughout the process where, you know, if someone's looking at the numbers, they're like, well, this organization had $200 million. Why did they only get $50 million out that year? So two pressures, one in the reporting investment and impact, and then one in the getting uh, getting funds out the door. Yeah, the, that is, so, so I'll start with the impact piece. That is something that a lot of people just haven't figured out. Um, it is, because what is impact? So we created, again, let's go back to Jazz and Nemo Development Corporation. Y'all created these 40 units. How do we measure what that did for people in a one-year timeframe? You know, how do we go back to U.S. Treasury CDFI fund and be like, hey, we put people in 40 units, and then what, right? I think that it's the impact is takes years, takes generations to figure out what that actually did for people. Um, you know, you can't find, you can't figure out in one year or two years that those 40 units, um, you know, allowed somebody to save enough money to buy a home or to move into another space, right? You can't figure out that in two years that because of that stable quality affordable housing, my blood pressure went down. Um, my kid's asthma has relieved, right? Like I, you, you just, it takes longer than that. So I think a lot of times impact reporting comes down to we put 40 units, 40 affordable units in a high poverty census tract. That's what the that's what the impact looks like. Um, or it's um, 
we have, this is going to be affordable for 15 years because we have a low income housing tax credit that requires that the, these units remain affordable for X number of years, right? Um, I think that's a lot of what the impact reporting ends up looking like. I think we can go deeper. I think there's a lot of room to grow in that space. I think we can look five years out and say, what did this actually do for people? And I think that requires talking to the people who live there, um, which I don't think that CDFI is, it's not something that's like regularly done um, because we are trying to get that money out, right? We're like, we kind of close on the deal and look to the next one. How do we how do we go to the next thing? Um, there is some, there's a lot of work that's being done now to improve that impact reporting and also show that just because something was quote unquote high risk, perceived as high risk, um, like a 40 unit affordable housing would be perceived as high risk. But just because of that, it doesn't mean that we lost money because actually we got paid back on time and this was a success. Um, I don't think there's ever like a shortage of projects. Um, there's always there's always somebody who who needs money for development. So it's not hard to get money out the door. I think what what makes it difficult is a lot of that money is earmarked. Um, it says, hey, you have to be you have to use this money for um, like for affordable housing that is co-located with Thai restaurants or whatever, right? Like it's very like specific earmarked money. So a lot of times that's what makes it difficult is like, okay, it has to be, so, so there are some pots of money, for example, that like, it has to be a, a black woman developer developing in a rural area and the max loan is $2 million and it has to be affordable at 60% of the area median income. That's like two projects in Georgia, right? Like that's, that is, it's, it's, it can be kind of hard when it comes to like very specific criteria. Um, but for the most part, they, there's, there's plenty of work to be done and plenty of, of projects that need financing help. It's just kind of putting that like very specific rural money together with some more general money and like making that project come together and making it work. Um, that's what I would say kind of about like getting getting that money out the door. No, that's a great point because I, as you were talking about um the sources of where you guys, where a CDFI would get capital. That was my first thought was like, well, usually when people get you money, they want to know, they have very specific ways that they want it to be allocated. And I was going to ask if you considered that to be at all a, a challenge in the work that you do. Sometimes, but for the most part, so, so, I don't know if I said it explicitly, but CDFIs get money from banks, from the federal government, from individual investors, and from foundations. Those are kind of like the four big buckets. Um, and then there's like other kind of smaller sources. But, you know, a lot of that, there, there are definitely sources of funding that they're like, 
because you're a CDFI, we trust you're going to put it in the right place. And they don't have those restrictions. Um, sometimes that's a little bit more expensive money, um, like meaning there's higher interest rates on that versus like a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, for example, giving us money to work in a specific neighborhood. That's going to be, a, that might be a little cheaper, but then there's specific, you know, we got to stay in that neighborhood. Um, so it's not. It's, it's just about blending. A lot of times it ends up being blending that stuff together. Um, the there, I mean, there are times where we're like, oh, we had three years to spend this money. We have $50 million left. We got to get it out the door. Right. And so that, that has happened, but um, a lot of times we'll get like extensions um, or, or we just kind of spend a little bit more time looking at that neighborhood and seeing what's needed. Thank you for that. That was really helpful to get kind of the context of, you know, what happens after, you know, you took us through the life cycle of a project, but then what may happen after and then also what um, CDFIs are doing now to improve that deeper look into what happens, um, not just a year after a project is completed, but, you know, so many years after and even the generational piece of a change made to a built environment or a project today can take a long time to see and just being being realistic with that, with that impact and that it doesn't happen overnight. So our last question for you, Natasha, in your opinion, what are the biggest problems facing cities and what are some potential solutions? This is like my favorite question because let's, we got, we got some work to do. So I think the two biggest problems for me, um, based on what I see and what I experience is this housing crisis, there is such a shortage of affordable housing. And I don't mean like 20 affordable at 20% AMI. I mean, affordable to the average millennial or the average Gen Z person, the average person just starting off their life cannot find somewhere to live um, for, a, for a price that they can actually afford and also want to eat for the month, right? Um, I think that is the biggest problem we're facing, um, which ties into the second problem that I think is huge is income inequality. Um, Atlanta was recently ranked as the most unequal uh, city in the nation when it comes to income. Um, and I think it ties to how housing is such a huge source of, of wealth and generational wealth for people in this country. And if we can't even get in the door, how are we supposed to grow our income and grow our wealth? So those are the two problems. I could go on about that forever. But the solutions, all these office buildings that are sitting vacant, why? They should be um, out. And Atlanta just purchased an office building downtown. The city of Atlanta purchased an office building downtown to convert it into a mixed use that includes affordable housing. Um, so yeah, I think that we need to take these office buildings, convert them into affordable housing. Um, I think that we need universal based income in this country. There are studies that it works, that it helps people just meet basic needs in their life. There's a pilot program also here in Atlanta that just giving somebody, I think, I think they started with $400 a month to black women and they're growing that because it was so successful. Um, rent control, rent stabilization, I think would help. There's, I know it's a little, it can be touchy, but 
we there's just no reason that these rents should be jumping 100 120% in a year that's like outrageous it gives people no chance to save anything so i think there should be uh, caps on that and then i think another piece is land trusts um so i don't know if y'all have done uh an episode talking about land trusts okay so it's essentially a, a nonprofit or it can be a city where they buy up land around a vacant land or or land with de uh, debilitated properties um and then let's say again jazz and emo development corporation you all can go and build on that land and you're you are renting the land from the city for like a dollar a year which totally cuts out land costs and then you can build more affordable housing and more affordable properties on that land still controlled by the city still controlled by the the nonprofit whoever owns it and they own it for a hundred years so it's just a really strong way of stabilizing costs for home ownership for all kinds of product projects um and those are the ones i'll stick to for today <laughs> but those are my thoughts on that no i appreciate those um i think in that tracing the dream episode we talked about income disparity and the stat that always stands out to me, and I will correct it in our show notes, but I think up until 1980 or like the late mid 70s, GDP growth, and so that's gross domestic product, and salaries grew at roughly the same pace. So like as GDP, as we produced more, people got paid more. Well, if you look at it today, income is like salaries are like hovering down here and GDP is continually to grow. And so there was some trigger in policy in which you, we are all collectively working more, producing more for our respective firms and organizations, but that production has significantly outpaced income growth. And I think that is one of the biggest causes of this this gap in affordability it's like well we're all working harder we're all producing more we've all gotten better and smarter and faster yet we not getting paid enough to 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 live up to these standards and so I think it's interesting to me because planning right we try to fit everything into a planning solution but I feel like a lot of things are outside of the quote unquote role of planning. Like some things are truly, you just need, like we need to have something about salaries. Like your company, if the company is going to be outpacing 20%, 20%, 20% year over year, but your salaries are staying at 4%, well, something needs to be done about that. And that's just my own um, take. And I don't know how that fits into a planning bucket, but I think that's where a big, uh, a large piece of the problem lies is just like incomes have not grown at the same pace that production has grown we have some time to do a topic or a segment that we like to do with our guest which is hot takes in urban planning Nima will you set a timer up for me okay so hot takes in urban planning we're going to give you three topics that we just came up with right now and we're going to give you 45 seconds to opine on each of those topics um Nemo, let me know when you are ready with the timer. 
Okay. The first one is tiny homes and you live in Atlanta. So I'm going to bring up uh, South Park Cottages, which is a black developer who built, I think it's about 29 or so tiny homes in Southwest Atlanta. Thoughts? Tiny homes are great if you want a tiny home, but why are we... I don't, I don't believe that it is the solution for um, houselessness, right? Like, I, why, why does somebody have to go from having no house to having 200 square feet? We can, we can do more for them. We can do more. The next one, you kind of talked on it, office to residential. What are your thoughts on it? Yes, 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 yes. Do it, do it. Um, I hear a lot of, oh, well, the way offices are configured is not conducive to residential. Fix it. You can do it. You can make it a residential space as long as it stays mostly affordable. Let's let's not make luxury apartments out of out of office buildings, please. And then the final one is growth boundaries. I don't. Uh... I haven't thought about that one. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think I like. I don't think I like that. I don't know. Because then, if you don't go out, you got to go up. So there's only going to be more people in the world. So <laughs> that's valid. I think only Denver right now has a formal growth boundary, but I might be missing another city. You did good. You got all those in like twenty seconds. <laughs> that's my communications training kicking in (laughs) well Natasha this has been an amazing episode we really really enjoyed your answers to the questions your insightfulness your perspective um loved having both a public health and urban planning expert on the show those are two places where Nemo and I love we love that intersection and so great to have you on the show um we are very excited for this to come out because we think that this conversation will be useful for a lot of people I don't think so I don't I didn't I didn't understand the scope of a CDFI until talking to you deeply. And so I'm hoping that for our listeners, it is also a very informative conversation that they can um, take back with them into their neighbors. Cause that's the purpose of our, ep- our purpose of our podcast is to give people the tools that they need to improve their neighborhoods. And I feel like this conversation with you about CDFIs and finance and urban planning has, is one of those tools that I think is underutilized. Yeah. Thank you so much, Natasha. I think similarly, you know, when we think about the purpose of, like Jasmine said, the purpose of the podcast, when people are like, when you tell someone that you studied urban planning or that you work in urban planning, they're like, what's that? I imagine to tell someone you work at a CDFI is an even deeper level of like, well, what does that mean? Um, And I think you did such a beautiful job of breaking that down in um, plain language for everybody to understand Um, And so, like Jasmine said, super grateful for your time and joining us. And I think this will be a great tool for folks. Thank you so much for having me. You all are doing really cool work with this podcast. And I just love to see it. And I'm so happy you all invited me here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And we drop episodes every other Tuesday. um, And you can find us on social media at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.